independent. And tonight, we will more formally uh, celebrate all that. I hope you can make it. It will be at 7 o'clock at the cross. And we'll begin with baptism. So we have a number of wonderful candidates who in baptism are going to express, even without a word, that they have found, even beyond political independence, a kind of a spiritual freedom from the penalty of sin because of the merits of Christ Jesus. So if you would like to come witness that, that would be wonderful at 7 o'clock. And then thereafter, uh, there will be lots of good music. The Robbie C. Band will be here and also Harbor Light uh, Singers. It's a choir that I think you will enjoy. And we will just sing and have a good time until uh, the sun goes down and it gets to be... uh, a suitable time for fireworks, and then we're going to fire those things off. You can bring a lawn chair or blanket and uh, sit anywhere on campus you'd like, because this year we're going to shoot the fireworks vertically. We're going to shoot them up, so they won't. We're not going to do them horizontally anymore, so you're safe. <laughs> so ordinarily, when we do baptism, folks gather together on the lawn closest to the cross, but you you need not do that necessarily. You can sit wherever you'd like on the campus and watch fireworks and you'll hear the music from wherever you are. So that's at seven o'clock. And uh, let's see, have you been to church service yet? I guess you couldn't because this is, oh, you did? You didn't go yet? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happens. You get old. I get confused. Yeah. You can't be there because you're here, right? So there you go. Well, go next hour. Brother Chuck is preaching. You know, our pastor is taking a little bit of a break this summer. Uh, well, not in, in, in not entirely so. He'll be with us a few Sundays this summer, but uh, a little bit of a break to study, to pray, and to uh, take care of family needs and so on. And in his absence, different ones will be filling in. So today, Brother Chuck, and he has a wonderful message uh, befitting the day. So please don't miss that particular one. Well, we are in, who knows what chapter we're in, in Genesis. I know we're in Genesis, but okay. Well, we would be in 19, except we're not. We're in, <laughs> but it's close. We're in chapter 18, Genesis 18, give you a chance to turn there. Last week you went through, Brother Chuck taught on the first 15 verses, first part of Genesis 18. We'll do the second part uh, today. And as you turn there, um, let me just fill you in a little bit on things. The first part of Genesis has something in it primarily for Sarah. The second part, you'll see today, has something in it primarily for Abraham. So take a look, Genesis uh, 18, verse 16. Then, so that's a time indicator. Something has transpired before. Something has preceded what we're about to read. Then the men, and we will read about them in just a little while, rose up from there. So uh, Abraham was visited by three very, very special guests. And you can read about that in the first verse of the chapter. Just to refresh your memory, it said, Now the Lord appeared to him, Abraham that is, by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. By the way, the oaks of Mamre would be present-day Hebron or Hebron. Depends on how you pronounce it. Hebron or Hebron, it's a burial site for a number of the patriarchs and their wives. It's in the news. I don't know if you've heard about this event. A few weeks ago, three Orthodox Israeli young people were kidnapped. Two are 16 years old, so that makes them minors by anyone's reckoning. And one was 19 years old. The IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, unleashed everything they had to go on a feverish search, still going on, for these three comrades. Door-to-door search in likely places and all the rest. While all this was going on, some leaders in the United Nations insinuated that it's all factually unsubstantiated and that it's a fabrication Uh, to justify Israel encroaching upon uh, some of the villages and cities in the West Bank. You know, you get to a point where you just say, 
what a waste of perfectly good real estate in New York City. I'll tell you that for crying out loud. Um, well, two of the most likely culprits have been identified. And, of course, they're being lauded by their families for participation in this event. And they're Hamas operatives. What a surprise. Um, so I bring this up for a lot of reasons, but one being the it looks like the likely place of the kidnapping was around this Hebron area that we're actually reading about here, the Oaks of Mamre. It's a hotbed for dissension and discontent and conflict and upheaval and terrorist activity. And so it would have been here where we're, we're reading about this, uh, the Oaks of Mamre. And it says Abram was sitting at the tent door. You see, he was nomadic, wasn't he? If you go to the Middle East today and see Bedouin people, those are largely Arabic Muslim people living in tents. They relocate from place to place. They're living essentially the way Abram, Abraham did uh, thousands of years ago. And then it says in verse 2, when he, Abraham, lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men, interesting, three men were standing opposite him. And if you skip to verse 10, they said something. Uh, One of them said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. That's what one of the three promised would happen. And if, in fact, it did, it would be a promise of a humanly impossible birth. Sarah knew this. She yearned to bear a child, but was past childbearing years. Uh, One of the three, you'll see who he is in just a second, perhaps you know already, uh, promised at this time next year, you will bear a child. So what's in view here for Sarah is something to enhance her faith, her confidence in the promises of Almighty God. And then in verses 16 on, you get something that focuses a little more on not Sarah, but Abraham. So it says the men rose up from there, Oaks of Mamre, Hebron, and they looked down towards Sodom. Now, if you've been to this part of the world, you know that this is topographically accurate and possible. If you're standing on a rise, hills, elevated hills, around the environs of Hebron, you can look down to Sodom, which is uh, located most likely on the southern part of the Dead Sea area. So on a clear day, you could see the Dead Sea, and just to the south, you would have been able to see Sodom and Gomorrah from Hebron. Uh, That view is available to us even today. So this is accurate. They looked down to Sodom and Abraham was walking with them to send them off. Why did he do that? Well, it's Middle Eastern hospitality. He has hosted them as guests, which is what one does in the Middle East. And he didn't just pat them on the back and sort of say, have a nice trip. He went with them a certain part of their distance as a sign of hospitality. Verse 17 says, And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And you wonder why God would even entertain this issue until you read the next verse. Shall I hide from him what I'm about to do since Abraham will surely become a great and mighty nation? And in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So God said this for the first time in Genesis 12. That's called God's covenant with Abraham or the Abrahamic covenant. It has been ratified several times already in Genesis, and here it is called upon even again. Shall I deal Abraham in a little closer in since, after all, he's going to be one from whom all the nations of the world will be blessed. In other words, God says, shouldn't I let him know how I am going to deal with various nations of the world since he's going to be a principal vehicle of blessing for the nations of the world? So that's kind of what what's happening over here. And then it says in verse 19, for I have chosen... Do you have a Bible that says something other than chosen? Known. Do you have that one? What would you say? I picked him out. Or I picked him out. That, that's all good. Yes, sir. I got a 
singled him out. That's good. All of these are really good. Uh, not that you need me to tell you, but you, you have good renderings. But I do want to tell you, when you see the word chosen in Hebrew, it really means to know. So to be chosen by God is to be foreknown. That's what's, you know how we have these fights about predestination and free will? I don't know if you're aware of it, but we're fighting. We Christians have nothing else to do. So we're, we're fighting about these matters. But to be predestined is to be foreknown. What this means is God, who is a timeless being, did not have to wait for us to catch up with him. He saw us coming from before time. That's essentially what it means. God chose you in the sense of him knowing you before you accepted him. How did that happen? You are stuck in time, as am I. Everything is linear, you know. Day one, day two, day three. But for God, he exists outside of time. He sees the end from the beginning. So he knew those of us who are Christians would be one day Christians. He knew this from before time. And he chose us in spite of us. And that's what he did with Abraham. He foreknew, he chose, he singled out, he picked out, however you have it. Abraham, in full knowledge of all of Abraham's flaws, and humanity, we've seen some of it. Remember when he said to Sarah, you're really a good-looking lady? When we go down to so-and-so's place, do you mind if I say you're my sister? Because you know what I'm saying, they're going to take a shine to you and jeopardize my well-being. Let's just play this. You know, if you love me, he says, you'll do this to protect me. That's a goofy thing to require of your wife, but but that and but God knew about that, and yet He chose this one to be a vehicle of blessing to the world anyway. So God says, "I've I've chosen him in order that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice." Now that's interesting. We know that God chose Abraham to bless the nations. But God is saying something quite striking here. He's essentially saying, Abraham, before you take off so as to bless the nations, you better bless your family. You better take care of your kids. To me, this is one of the strongest verses in the Bible uh, to suggest that we parents, grandparents, ought to emphasize the nurture and admonition of our kids. He essentially says, Abraham, I want you to let them know about my way. My way is characterized, the text says, by righteousness and justice. Essentially, God is saying, Abraham, how dare you think you can manage and minister to the nations of the world when you're failing in your ministry to your family? This is hugely important. Uh, Nobody has a ministry if they failed in their ministry to their family. Did you know that? Uh, We ministers sometimes are very, very tempted uh, to in, uh, so invest in in satisfying ministry outside of the home that we neglect the home, and God essentially says you got it, you got you got it all wrong. So here's an emphasis you see on ministry to children. God says to him, "I chose you that you may command your kids, your household, keep the way of the Lord, and it's characterized by righteousness and justice. Righteousness might have to do with our." Our position with God, standing right with God. Justice is how we treat one another. These are summary statements that distinguish how God governs. Isn't it good to have a father who governs based on these two principles, righteousness and justice? Wouldn't it be great to have leaders like this? Well, we should produce them. (laughs) Uh, They live under a roof, for crying out loud. The buck stops there, folks. We should raise our kids this way. Righteousness, meaning right standing with the creator. It's crazy to think that we could live life apart from the giver of life and make a go of it. So righteousness is standing rightly with God. Justice is translating that into right behavior to to one another. Isn't it great to have a, a heavenly father like that who you can be proud of? He's not corrupt. There are no secrets. He's not manipulative or deceptive. Nothing like that. His way is based on righteousness and justice. And that's the way he wants us not only to live, but he wants us to impart that to our children as well. And then it says in verse 20, And the Lord said, The outcry 
of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. The sin of what was taking place in these cities and others, Sodom and Gomorrah, was so great, it almost was like a cry uttered to the heavenlies demanding retribution. Their sin begged for judgment, almost. It was so gross and grotesque that it cried. It was almost as if it literally cried out to a holy God seated on the throne to do something. I find this to be an encouraging verse in a weird way. And that's because it reminds me that God sees and God hears and God judges. Do you ever get frustrated by the stuff, irritated by the stuff going on, the the injustice, inconsistencies, wickedness, and evil going on, seemingly unchecked? I'm so thrilled that God lends his ear to it. It's an outcry. He hears about it. Sodom and Gomorrah were unbelievable. It's not just that the people missed choir practice. I mean, they offered their children in sacrifice to false gods. Their sexuality got so depraved and crazy. I mean, in some ways, they would make us look like Boy Scouts. It was just horrific. It was crying out, crying out to Almighty God for a response. Do you get, you know, you're, most of you are, are Christians. Do you ever get to the point where you just want to, you want to just go, you want to poke your eyes out or someone else's eyes out because things are just so crazy. But take solace, you know, the, the God whose way is righteousness and justice is aware of all this and ultimately will judge. This past week or two, um, I felt like poking my eyes out or something. Well, I wanted to punch someone out, tell you the truth. But I can't find anyone smaller than me. You know what I mean? So I don't, I can't use that approach. Oh, Jimmy. Okay. Thanks. I love Jimmy. No, Jimmy is tough. Jimmy is tough. No, 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 no. Um, so, uh, the PC USA, that's the Presbyterian Church USA. I take pains to distinguish. That's a denomination of Presbyterians. So what I'm about to say is not in any way an indictment on Presbyterian people. I don't mean to insinuate. Just like there are many Baptist denominations, so there are different Presbyterian denominations. This is, this is a large one, one of the largest. They used to have, um, close to five million members. And they're down now to about a million and a half. I think that's still too many um, for them. So here's what they did. They had the General Assembly a couple weeks ago. That's, you know, like the Southern Baptist Convention. You get together, you vote on stuff. Uh, it's a major denomination. That's what they did. They got together to vote on stuff. And they voted a few things like to redefine marriage. So they took God's definition of it, you know, man and woman, irreversibly bound, that kind of deal. And they rephrased it to, to be two, um, two partners, two partners. You know, and I thought that's cutesy because that obviously allows for same-gender marriage. But it also allows for adult minor child marriage. Those are two partners, right? It also allows for person and dog marriage. I mean, I know I've sounded a little goofy here, but uh, do you realize the Pandora's box? That's opened when we redefine God's marriage. I mean, it could be, it could be any of that stuff. So they did that and they also voted on some, uh, regulations which opened the door wider to abortion in many, many circumstances. And then along with it, they decided to divest their stock holdings from certain companies, three in particular, that do business with Israel. Uh, one was, uh, is, I believe, Motorola. One is Hewlett-Packard, and I can't remember the other. Um, so they thought, we're going to do this to punish those companies, well, to give those companies an incentive to stop doing business with Israel because Israel, I don't know if you knew this, is an oppressive apartheid state victimizing uh, the non-Jewish residents of the land. And so the Pres PCUSA, Presbyterian Church USA, said we don't want we don't want our stock holdings to be in companies that uh, you know bulldozers and stuff like that because the Israelis just use these bulldozers to plow down uh, Palestinian villages and then they take control of them stuff like that. That's what they did. Um, it's caused such attention that even the Prime Minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu, responded. It's interesting when a a national leader responds to a so-called Christian, an American Christian denomination. And he said, uh, he offered an invitation to them. Come to Israel. Check it out. See 
what's going on. Find probably the only true democracy in the Middle East. And then Netanyahu said, when you're done looking us over, get on a bus if you want and have the driver take you to Syria or Lebanon and see what you find there. But he said, because I recommend it be uh, an armor-coated bus. And by the way, don't let anyone there know you're Christians. See, you can go to Israel if you want to. You can stand on a street corner preaching Jesus. You can have a big cross right there. You can do whatever you want. Now, there could be some of the citizenry who don't like you and hit you and just like it can happen here. But the government defends your right to do that, for crying out loud. It's very ironic that the Presbyterian Church indicts the only country where they could publicly and freely object to what's going on in that country. In any other Middle Eastern country, uh, you would be bloodied, brutalized, and perhaps even even killed. So I look at those things and I say to myself, this is unbelievable. This is crazy. This is nuts. It wouldn't even bother me except that I call themselves Christians. And then I realize, oh my goodness, when your view of scripture ceases to be high and it becomes low, in other words, when you use um, sociological trends to interpret the Bible instead of unchangeable biblical truth uh, to impact on society, then everything goes. So it's no wonder a view of abortion, a view of marriage, and a perspective on Israel. I mean, when you're wrong about the the uh, unalterable, uh, inerrant, authoritative truths of Scripture, for crying out loud, you're going to be wrong about all kinds of stuff. So I look at that and I feel myself crying out, God, do something! And then I remember Sodom and Gomorrah and... Uh, It's outcry, which doesn't fall on deaf ears. So I want to take a little more comfort, I hope you do as well, in knowing our grand and glorious Father neither slumbers nor sleeps. He is aware, and he will ultimately judge evil. We'll talk more about it in a second. But he says here in verse 21, I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry which has come to me. If not, I will know. Some, on the basis of verse 21, say the God of the Bible is no God at all. What God is it who has to come down on a fact-finding mission before he makes a decision? By definition, God ought to be in full possession of all things, the facts of the matter. Therefore, this cannot be a true God. Those are people who don't know what they're talking about. This is called biblical accommodation. This is a transcendent deity, a God who transcends space and time, reducing himself, accommodating himself so that we could learn something. And what do we learn? When God invokes his justice, it's not on impulse, whimsy, irritability or moodiness, and it's in full possession of the facts. God is long-suffering. He's quite patient, for he desires all to be saved, for none to perish. He doesn't fly off the handle as perhaps we are prone to do. This is an accommodation to show us Almighty God, the Most High God, in a manner of words, has come down to examine things. He doesn't have to read the newspaper and check out Facebook and all the rest of that stuff. He is personally, directly, uh, first-handedly involved in what's going on in the world. And so we could know whatever God does in terms of judgment is based on full possession. of This is, you know, it says, I will go down. This is like Genesis 11, remember Tower of Babel? When it also said God went down, that's an accommodation. It's just to show us nothing escapes his view nor purview. He is aware of all things. Because you might say otherwise, uh, If God is omniscient, all-knowing, he doesn't have to find out about all things. If God is omnipresent everywhere, he doesn't have to go down. That's true. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. This is written this way as an accommodation to us to help us to trust Almighty God. Again, he judges righteously, not whimsically. So that's kind of what's going on here. Now, verse 22, then... The men turned away from there and went toward Sodom while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. 
Now, we read earlier that he was visited by, Abraham was visited by three guests. Now we find out two of the three leave to go to Sodom. Who are these two? Well, Genesis 19 verse 1 tells us. It says, now the two angels came to Sodom. We know two of the three of these visitors were angels. It says so. Who then was the third? Who do you think the third was? Probably the Lord Jesus. Yeah. We say, Lord Jesus, but wait, he wasn't born till December 25th. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's, there was a day when he, when he became enfleshed, but he was pre-existent, meaning he had existence before his birth. You didn't, neither did I. Only he did. Why? Because God is pre-existent. God doesn't have a beginning nor an end. When we celebrate Christmas, which is a wonderful thing to celebrate, we celebrate the pre-existent God coming into our space-time dimension as one of us to die for us. But we don't celebrate his coming into existence. He's God. He had pre-existence. So you say, well, then what did he do before the Christmas event? Did he just sit around waiting for his time? No way. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit were in existence, and they did their ministrations Eons ago, just as they do, just as they do today. And so it says, Abraham, verse 22, finds himself standing before the Lord. In verse 23, Abraham came near and said, Wilt thou indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? This is his concern. You and I know that would not be just to treat the righteous and the wicked the same. Abraham, it occurs to him, he's struck by this. God, would you do this? Are you going to treat all people the same, those who are righteous, those who are wicked? That doesn't make sense to me. I think at this point, he has in mind his family, perhaps. They are living in Sodom. What was his key relative's name? Lots in Sodom. Perhaps he shouldn't have been there, but he's there. Abram is in Hebron. Oaks of Mamre. Lot would have been better off there. Lot immersed himself in an astoundingly wicked, evil society. But Abraham knew him to be different than the others. And perhaps now is wondering, God, are you going to sweep them all away? Surely you won't treat my relative, righteous Lot and his family the same as you would others. But wait. You say, righteous lot? This guy was a creep. Are you kidding me? Well, it depends on how you define righteousness. Righteousness, from a biblical point of view, is not primarily right doing. It is right standing. Right standing. Lot was not a perfect person, but he had right standing with the God of the Bible. By faith. How do I know this? Let me read this to you. Second Peter. It's a kind of a commentary on what we're reading now. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 6 and on. It says, And if he, God, condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued, look at this, righteous Lot. If he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that, now for the second time, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his, third time, righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Three times Lot in Second Peter is referred to as being righteous. But in Genesis, he appears to be a man of the world, straying from God, and his own fathers. He was. The word righteous means justified. It doesn't mean perfect. You know who that applies to? Us. Justified, though not perfect. And so Abraham, I think, in speaking to God here, had in mind righteous Lot and his family members. Surely, God, they're different. They're categorically different than the others, the Sodomites. And those in Gomorrah, they're different. Surely you won't, you won't wipe them all, you won't wipe them all out. And so, uh, 
This is the basis of Abraham's conversation with God. Now, we mentioned Genesis is the book of beginnings or first things. Here's a new first thing. It's called intercessory prayer. If you intercede on behalf of another, it means you take up the cause of that other before God. To intercede is to stand between a man or a woman in trouble and holy God and to sort of plead their case. To intercede is to do that, is to make an appeal to God's grace and mercy on behalf of those who don't deserve it. That's to intercede. That's what Abraham is doing. He's interceding here on behalf of the res- his own family and, and, and the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah. He is essentially saying, God, I can't imagine that you, being a just God, would treat the righteous and the wicked exactly the same. Now, Abraham is not questioning God's right to judge those whom he has made. He could do whatever he wants. Abraham is not saying, who do you think you are to do this? He knows who he is. He's the judge of all the earth. He has a right to judge his creation. He knows God has a right to judge the wicked, but he also suspects God would not judge, God would not treat the wicked and the righteous in exactly the same way. Therefore, he wants to know, what's the cutoff? At what point does the presence of certain righteous people in a locale cause you, almighty God, to back off on judging the whole area. That's kind of what he wants to know. So he says this in verse 24. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Wilt thou indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from thee to do such a thing to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike, far be it from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly. You know what Abraham does? He throws back to God characteristics of God. God loves it. By the way, that's praise. When you offer back to God, when you remind yourself and God of whom he is, that's called praise. When you say, oh God, you are merciful. You are compassionate. You love us unconditionally. Oh God, you will never leave us or forsake us. God, you're the only true God. You're the most high. You know, you, you did, that's called praise. That's when you reflect back to God what he already revealed to you about himself. That's essentially what Abraham is doing. You are the judge. You are the righteous judge of all the earth. Far be it from you, to judge unrighteously. So he's not being disrespectful at all. I think he's actually doing that which is pleasing to God. Once again, to remind God of who he is, of his own attributes, that's a very pleasing thing to God. So is Abraham trying to change God's mind? No. You know what he's trying to do? He's trying to know God's mind. He's trying to figure it out. Why? Because he's new. He's growing. He's a spiritual child. So are you. So am I. Hence, the Bible refers to us as little children. We're not full-grown, matured, spiritual adults yet. We're in process. He's our father. We are his children. We don't know all things about him. We're trying to figure it out. So too is Abraham. He wasn't trying to twist God's arm or talk God out of anything. He's trying to understand and comprehend God. He just wants to know. He's trying to discover the mind of God. And so the Lord says in verse 26, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham answered and said, Now behold, I I, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Dust, that's how he started. Ashes, that's how he will end. He is making sure he's being respectful to God. And he says in verse 28, suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Wilt thou destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. So God had agreed to spare the city if 50 righteous could be found. I think at this point, Abraham is doubting that they could, that there would be 50 righteous there. So he's taking some liberties here, a little bit of a risk, and he's saying, what about 45? 
He's beginning to lower the figure. And then in verse 29, he says, it says, he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I, I won't do it on account of the 40. And then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. By the way, God won't be angry with one of his kids asking questions like this. Uh, uh, do you get angry with your child or grandchild who's trying to learn how to walk? <laughs> do you say, stand up and stop falling? <laughs> Are you grandpa, do that little one and you, who's maybe crying at the time, and you just grab that person and say, wow, that was a neat trick. You know, you try to, wow, how did you fall? That was such a neat trick. You take them by the hand and, you know, you just try to do it again. You know, that kind of, but God doesn't get angry at us to try to understand and comprehend his his ways, that's not disrespect. That's, a, that's growth. That's spiritual growth. And so he, Abraham says, oh, God, don't be angry. I shall speak. Uh, suppose 30 are found there. And, and he said, I won't do it if there are 30 there. Verse 31, he said, now, behold, I, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. And then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. Uh, and I shall speak only this once, one more time, in other words. Suppose ten are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. And as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed, and Abraham returned to his place. So reading this, many people ask the question, Abram, Abraham, why did you stop there? Why did you stop at ten? Keep going. And there's a lot of, uh, suggestions. Some say he stopped at 10 because he thought, surely there are going to be 10 righteous people there. I don't have to go lower than that because he did some math in his head. You got Lot and Lot's wife. That's two already. Uh, they had two daughters, add four. So you got 40%. There you go. You got four out of 10. The two daughters have these two guys sons-in-law to be or what it, we'll talk about in Genesis 19. But let's say there's six, 60%. Lot and his family have lived in the neighborhood for a while. Surely they influenced some others in the area to be righteous. Surely there'd be 10. Guess what? They weren't. That's just how bad it, it got to be. And so... So it tells us something about the very poor influence Lot had on his neighbors' lives, huh? Yeah, he probably shouldn't have been living there. Even Second Peter uh, comments and tells us his soul was vexed when he saw the sensual behavior of those all around him. It got to a point where the s society was impacting on Lot more than Lot on the society. And it appears that Lot was not very effective in influencing folks in Sodom and Gomorrah with regard to the way of the Lord, which is righteousness and justice. There weren't even ten. There weren't even ten. In other words, he was kind of a, an impotent witness, you might say. So what do we conclude from this passage? A couple things. Uh, God, who was very careful about his judgment with reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, who had a very controlled, composed, studied, patient approach to it all is that way today with regard to the nations and people of the world who are just as wicked. On the other hand, there comes a time when he removes the righteous and then there is the full outpouring of his wrath. The episode with Sodom and Gomorrah is given as a warning to the people and nations of the world there comes a time when Almighty God, who is so patient and so good, will manifest his mercy and grace by delivering those who are righteous from his judgment and by subjecting those who reject him to the outpouring of his judgment. This is one of the reasons why I'm one who holds to what's called the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. See, I think there'll come a time when we are raptured, caught up is what it means, taken out, removed, delivered from, if you will, our Sodom and Gomorrah so as to be with the Lord. And then the full outpouring of his wrath befalls the world. That's called the tribulation, not an ordinary tribulation of which we have plenty. It's referred to 
by theologians as the great tribulation. Why? It has the distinctive character of being a time of the outpouring of God's wrath. And that's why I don't believe we will go through it. You tell me when you're going to pour out your wrath on your children and grandchildren. I didn't say you're not going to discipline them, be displeased with them, spank them, and do whatever you have to do. (laughs) But wrath? It doesn't characterize the father's response to us, especially especially since his wrath has been fully outpoured on his only begotten son. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's the wrath of the father poured out on the son in our place. Since that's already taken place, remember the Lord Jesus said, it's finished. Since it's over with, we are not subject to the wrath of God. We're subject to the discipline of God. Therefore, I don't believe we're going to be here any more than Lot and his family were left behind in Sodom and Gomorrah. So one thing to know is our Father's timing with regard to ultimate judgment of the world is determined and on its way. But in Christ Jesus, you and I are protected and will be removed before it happens. Greg? Uh, that's yeah 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 Greg was saying uh, the, the actual judgment and wrath on Sodom and Gomorrah was uh, an idea brought up by by Abraham not by God uh, probably Abraham discerned God's intention in the transaction between between the two something else to conclude it seems to me from this chapter Um, is this. First of all, um, I mentioned to you God addressed two separate issues here. And the first part of the chapter, which Brother Chuck covered last week, the first 15 verses, I mentioned to you that's primarily for the benefit of Sarah. Uh, She needed some help with the issue of God's ability. (laughs) Remember, God said that well, this time next year you'll have a child. Probably her struggle with was with, is God able? But Abraham's struggle was probably a little more with God's motive. So, Sarah, are you going to do what you said you're going to do? Abram, is your motive behind what you're going to do? Is it just? And so the second part, 16 and on, was pretty much for Abram's behalf. We struggle with these things, don't we? God, are you able? God, are you willing? God, can I trust you? What is your motive like? And so here, uh, God has taken pains with Abraham to show him, Abram, my motive is to deliver those who stand rightly with me and to judge those who've rejected me. Something else. Do you realize that Abraham knew more about the future of the residents of these cities than they themselves? (laughs) Did you know they didn't know their future, but he did? Because God made him privy to it. Remember he said, shall I let Abraham in on this? Yes, I should. I chose him to be a blessing to the nations of the world. I want him to know how I work with the nations of the world. Abraham knew about what was going to befall these cities way before they did. And so too do you and I. Think about it. We have the mind of Christ. And we have much more of the revelation of God than even Abraham did. We have 66 books. We're reading about him in Genesis, folks. That's all there was, Genesis. We have 66 books which reveal to us the ways, the works, the values, and the intent of of God. Now, now we are as privileged as Abraham was, but it brings with it a responsibility. What are we supposed to do with all the knowledge? We have knowledge of God's judgment, impending judgment, about to befall people, national leaders, international leaders, countries of the world, uh, members of false religions, and all the rest. We have knowledge, but what are we supposed to do with it? At the least, we're supposed to do what Abraham did, and that is to intercede, stand in the gap, Pray. How? By offering back to God a reminder of his attributes. Oh, God, we know that you've come to save. You desire for none to perish, but for all to be saved. Oh, God, based on your grace and on your mercy, would you somehow have uh, show your grace and be merciful to the leaders of Iran? Could you pray that? To the uh, ISIS group in Iraq. ISIS, the I starts with Islamic, just to give you an idea. Uh, these are people whose values we don't, we don't like, but too bad. I mean, I mean, this is our responsibility because judgment will befall all those who turn from 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. A guy like me has to pray for the leadership of the PCUSA. <laughs> yes, that God would grant repentance and a high view of Scripture. And that there are ways which, in other words, when you watch the news, we got options. We can get irritated and frustrated and angry, or we can use it as a prayer prompter. We could pray for that person or this one or that nation or this one. That's what Abraham did. Remember, this is the first illustration of how to intercede for those whose destiny we know of, apart from Christ, they will be judged. Second, so let's do at least as good as Abraham did in that regard. Second, let's do better than Lot. A a, a Lot fit in, apparently, tried to. And so his society influenced him, apparently, more than he influenced it. So what we have done, I think, sadly, as Christians, as we've sacrificed on the altar of uh, righteousness and justice, our new idol, relevance. We choose to be relevant than righteous and justice. And so we're so relevant, we've succeeded at it. The world cannot distinguish us as being apart, separated, because now we fit in. You see what I mean? So (laughs) if you're um, in a church refusing to officiate at a marriage between two same-gender people, for instance, uh, the laws of the land um, are are heavily weighing against you. If you're a baker who is a Christian and cannot, in clear conscience, make the wedding cake for a lesbian couple or a homosexual couple uh, to men, to women, for instance. The laws of the land increasingly are weighing against you. And I sort of say, why not? The society found out we don't take our values very seriously. Why should it? Do you know a study was done of college-age Christian kids and in excess of 60% said they see nothing wrong with living together prior to marriage. There may be some in here who feel that way. And I can understand that. It makes sense economically and all the rest. After all, you don't buy a pair of shoes without trying it on, right? You know what I mean? So if marriage is really important, all the more reason to test each other out uh, before you actually make that. 60% of uh, college kids calling themselves evangelical Christians now opt for that. So you can see, you can see if our values are being encroached upon and challenged, why not? They don't appear to be very valuable to us. We look like uh, just about every, everyone else. We go to the same movies. We have the same stuff on our cable TV. We dress the same. We drink the same. You know, we, we drink just like everybody else drinks. Our divorce rate is about the same as everybody. I don't mean to hurt anyone. I'm just trying to make a statement of fact. We have succeeded in being relevant. In fact, in a lot of places, preaching scripture anymore is not as important as preaching about how uh, if you just think positively, you can bring into existence anything you want because there's a, you're a champion. There's a champion in you. You just claim your rights as uh, children of the king, but there's no real call to live in terms of our holy responsibilities uh, anymore. So I'm not angry at the government or the society. I'm lot, so are you. In my interest in fitting in, not being weird, not being odd, being pleasing to those around me, I've bit my tongue and I've held back, I've compromised. We all have, for crying, for crying out loud. And so, and so uh, as I read this, I say, for crying out loud, lot couldn't even... Couldn't, couldn't even influence a few people to, to be in right standing with God as, as he was uh, by grace through faith. What about us? Are we impacting on the society and on the culture or are they impacting, um, is the society and culture impacting uh, on us? I'm not to, suggesting we be weird or odd or anything like that, but you know the word sanctified means to be set apart. Isn't it a grand privilege? that this God chose, knew, selected, picked out, knew, had foreknowledge of us being wedded to him even before time. What a grand and glorious privilege. We're ones who are going to be delivered from the wrath to come. We're ones uh, for whom God has chosen to reveal what is otherwise secret and mysterious. He's, we have the mind of Christ. This is really good. This tells us we're different. We're set apart. That's what it means to be sanctified. But we've pretty much profaned all that. 
debased uh, ourselves and we're very careful about what we say in uh, preaching and teaching times and we don't want our neighbors to think we're we're odd and we're weird and increasing numbers of us are not coming to church on Sunday anymore because you could access it uh, live streaming and so on and so forth. But I think we're failing to see going to church. It's not just about, it's about your neighbors. They have to see you pull out of the driveway, folks. They got to see whose side you're on when they're mowing the lawn and playing golf. Nothing's wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. They got to see somehow you don't do it on Sunday. Somehow you go to a mysterious place with a big old white cross down the road. And I don't know what you do there, but somehow you carve out the time, you and your whole family. That's what you, I mean, the world has to see. A lot had apparently no influence. Apparently Sunday, or in his case, Shabbat, Saturday was no big deal when he lived in Sodom and Gomorrah. He just fit in. He did like everybody. Did like everybody. Do you know we got enough Christians to change the world? We don't need more Christians to do that. For crying out loud, the Lord took care of business with 12. And they were just a bunch of smelly fishermen, mostly. For crying out loud. We know more than they did. We don't need more people to turn things upside down. We need a brand of radical Christianity, which is only radical because we've drifted from what ought to be the norm. It's not radical to marry someone forever. It's not radical. It's not radical not to marry if you're not ready for that. That's not radical. It's not radical to reserve sex for marriage. It's not radical. It's not radical to refuse to run the risk of being mastered by any substance. It's not radical to say no at a social gathering. No, thank you, not for me. That's not radical. It's not radical to refuse to go to certain movies and, and, and not to watch certain, you know, HBO. I mean, it's not radical. (laughs) It's not radical to stop being so doggone fashion conscious that I need every piercing and tattoo everyone else has. To me, there's nothing inherently wrong with those things. It's worse than that. It's this, in, this terrible compulsion we have to fit in. We think so we could build bridges and share the gospel. But the opposite is happening. We're invalidating our holy message. Don't you get it? We're invalidating it. For, I didn't say we got to run around with uh, white shirts, narrow ties, bicycles, and all that kind of stuff. I didn't say you have to be dressed like an Orthodox Jew with beanies and fringes and all the rest. I didn't say anything like that. You can, you can, you can wear shirts that cover the love handles. That's what I do. You know, even, I'm not, I'm saying you have to be, but this idea, this one got that tattoo, that one got that piercing. I have to, in order to build bridges, you're not building bridges. You know what? You're, you're devaluing the holy calling. You know what those people are looking for? They're not looking for a comrade. They're looking for purpose, meaningful. They're looking for something to live for beyond the stuff of life, the recreational pursuits, the fashion of life. That's just petty stuff. The world is intimate. They're looking for someone who's living by a different kind of a standard. Lot failed. Come on. Let's not be. We're living in a kind of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's win some people to a righteous way of living by first manifesting it. So these are the two things I get. Let's be like Abraham and intercede for people in places under judgment. Secondly, let's not be like Lot. Let's influence the culture rather than have the culture influence us. Bob? Yeah, that's a good question. And I'll give you our pastor's uh, email number and telephone. No. (laughs) Bob's question is then why do we make it so easy for people not to come to church by putting church on internet? You know, this is the, this is the deal. We want to make it easy for people to access church who can't come to church. You know, we used to call these people shut-ins. And in the old days, we used to bring an old, you know, cassette tape to those people so they could hear the message. But now, wow, they could have a sense of seeing and the worship and being participants. So it is actually meeting the needs of many people. Also, there are many, many people do you know our uh, streaming services are accessed by people around the world where there is no church in some cases? So it's, it serves a great purpose. But then others of us are missing the point of it all. We're able-bodied. We're, we're in a free country. Thank God. We're able to get in our car and come to a church, but out of convenience. And self-centered laziness, we're staying home. And I, why do I say self-centered? You cannot encourage me from home. I cannot encourage you. 
But when you give me, as our pastor recommends, a word, a look, and a touch, face to face, that is greatly encouraging. I wish I had the time to tell you what encouragement I received from brothers and sisters just by me. I hope I'm doling out some as well. Electronics can't, can't do that. So it's possible, uh, Bob, that what we intended as a help could actually be a hindrance to people. We have to be careful. Brother, do you have your hand up? Yes, sir. Wow. Man, that is good. No, you can't get it at home. That is really good. That is. Wolf, worship, outreach. Fellowship and education. That is good. I'm going to use it. I'm going to steal it. Give you no credit for it. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yes, ma'am. Yes, Virginia. Yes, indeed. That is just huge. How could he, having heard from God, not pass it on to his family? Yeah. Rick? Thank you, Rick. Good word. Really, really good word. See, we need each other. I would not have gotten that if I stayed home today. I mean it. We encourage one another in in the faith so that we don't become like Lot, so enamored by the world and the things it has to offer. Our citizenship is in heaven. Well, God bless you folks. Thanks for hanging in there. Next week, there is no Bible study. Did you know that? July 6th. Um, we are having our worship services, but we give... All of our teachers and everybody else have a little break on 4th of July weekend to just come and worship together and then go off and spend time with families. So, so no classes next week. All right. God bless you. Thanks for coming. I hope you can make it tonight for our patriotic service and baptism starting at 7 o'clock. Lord Jesus, thank you for one another. It is true we irritate one another from time to time. The things about one another we don't exactly like. 
but it doesn't loom very large when we think about how you called us each into your family and forever fellowship. You regard us as sons and daughters, meaning you want us to regard one another as brothers and sisters, and we help one another. We're really on the same side. We have your mind, and we need to hear it expressed by one another in manifold ways because we don't want to be like Lot, sort of neutralized in terms of his impact. And we do want to be like Abraham, more voraciously interceding for those whose destiny is judgment apart from you. So, Lord, thank you for this account. Thank you for accommodating yourself to us. Thank you for showing us your transaction with Abraham. We looked in on it and have learned from it, and we are really, really grateful. And, oh, God, we pray that you might make us to be more like the salt and light you have called us to be. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God.